You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Alright, everybody, here we go. You are the ones who have chosen not to sing. Today we're going to talk about work. And what it means to work faithfully unto God in the midst of a secular culture. Um, if you'll remember, we started a couple of weeks ago talking about the, the reality of pressing taught again, Ephesians 6. Whatever, however we're supposed to understand life in this age, um, it is not a peaceful age. It is not um, an age in which we are not at war. Um, foundational to Paul's argument in Ephesians 6, where you can't make sense of anything going on in Ephesians 6, unless you understand that, that this is a combative age. Um, that there is real danger, there is a real enemy, um, there are real principalities and powers at work in the midst of the world through the, um, through the, through the policies of our age, the politics of our age, um, the media companies of our age, um, through, uh, through everything that, that permeates our world. That we stand in the midst of an age um, in which there are things, um, there are powers, there are... Um, Messages, there are philosophies, there are stories, um, all of them aimed at, directly aimed at, uh, trying to destroy you. Um, which is exciting because that involves trillions of dollars being spent by the smartest human beings on the planet, all trying to get you addicted to or to buy into a way of life, a way of viewing the world, a way of thinking about the world, a way of engaging with the world, um, that in the end leads to death. And so, none of you or me, even with our combined intelligence in this room, are as smart as the people trying to do this to you. And you take all of our money together, and it is nothing compared to the amount of money being spent to destroy you. So, cheers. Great. Um, since last week, taking that framework, taking that idea, which we began with saying, hey, in the light of that kind of world, how then do you live? And foundational, absolutely foundational, is we love the word, we cling to the word, we evaluate our lives and the world around us through the lens of the word. The Bible itself is, is our fundamental authority. You should not be tricked into thinking that your emotions are the, the, the measure of the goodness or the badness of a thing. Um, you should not be tricked into thinking that your neighbor's emotions or your neighbor's thoughts um, are the appropriate measure or standard for what is right or what is good or what is true or what is beautiful. Um, but rather, the Word of God, the Scriptures themselves, are the fundamental, final, absolute authority over our lives. So as a people, the only way we can navigate a world um, as hostile to the existence of God, the rule of God, the authority of God, the grace of God, the law of God, uh, as hostile to God as our world is, the only way to navigate that, given the reality of sin and indwelling sin in us, is that we must cling to the word. It's the only thing we, we need a word outside of ourselves, and so we cling to that word. And then last week we talked about marriage and family, talked some of the particular ways in which our culture is at war with war, at war with marriage and family. Our culture hates the fruitfulness of the home. Hates it, despises it. 
This is why when abortion is threatened, th think about this for a second. When abortion, the, the right to abortion is threatened, like our culture sets its hair on fire. Think of the screaming and the groaning and the, um, the, the, the rage that has ensued since Roe v. Wade was overturned. I mean, think of what happened in our state. I mean, a couple blocks from here, in the state that has the most grotesque and disturbing abortion laws in the country. Why? Is, does that ever strike you as strange? It's very strange to me. But it, it's not strange when you begin to understand, when you begin to come to terms with the fact um, that we live in a world that, that hates truthfulness, despises truthfulness. And so, there, so, so at every layer um, of the home, whether it's uh, your own sexuality, whether it's the sexuality of your marriage, whether it's the fruitfulness of your marriage, of producing children, whether it's raising children to fear, know, love, treasure God above all things, um, uh, every single level of that is being fought against. So then again, we cling to the word, we pursue, we pursue the discipleship of our children, but we understand that, that sex and, and all of the many gifts that God's given us are gifts from God to be received with thanksgiving and gratitude to Him. And then, in light of that, then used to honor Him with our joy um, and with His glory. Okay? So that was last week. This week, we're talking about work. And so I want to ask, I want to have an open-ended question. This is exciting. Then we're ready. Here's the opening question. Um, where do you find yourselves most challenged as Christians in the workplace? Where do you find yourself most challenged as a Christian in the workplace? You should yell out an answer. I don't think you're in the workplace yet, but... <laughs> Maybe if you're not challenged in the workplace. The break room. The break room. Why? Because everybody kind of is unprofessional. Okay. Okay. The break room. Social interactions with people where they, where they let their guard down. Okay. What As up? a boss. What's up? As a boss. Do you find yourself challenged? How? Why? Uh, walking the line between having authority over someone trying to tell someone the truth, how much, how much of that truth can you say? Okay, that's good. Where else? HR. HR. Are you HR? You are playing HR? No, dealing with HR. How, how so? Like the diversity, equity, inclusion pursuits. Okay. And then within the last year, like the whole medical mandates and stuff like that. Okay. Do you have to give your pronouns in your emails? Pastor Brian, he, him. Um, just that was meant to be a joke. Okay. So, um, all right. So we find ourselves challenged around social interactions. Um, social interactions, which my guess is they may not always be the most godly, um, holy, righteous, virtuous, 
edifying conversations and those social interactions in the break room. Financial challenge, we're given authority. Like, how do we wield that authority? How do we live in the tension of the fact that we're under authority? Um, sometimes authority that isn't good. I'm creating policies that aren't good, but I've also been given authority to charge to exercise my authority for the good of the people under me. And uh, the good of the people under me also often involves saying things that would be a violation of the things that I'm under. The dealing with HR, the pervasive, um, wacky understandings of justice that pervade um, our current time and how that begins to, to set agendas for us in the workplace um, which are deeply troubling. Um, so given those three things, I, I think like I, I, would, I, I would add maybe a couple of pieces about how our culture understands, our secular culture understands the nature of work um, and, and where work has meaning and where work doesn't have meaning. Um, work in our culture only has meaning if it's my own. If it's work that produces my own desired ends. Does that make sense? So, so the overarching narrative in modern American culture is uh, the, the, highly, the highest values on the self. And so my work has meaning, my job has meaning, um, if it produces either the wealth I want, Less and less about wealth, though. I think more and more it's about emotional satisfaction that I want. Um, so you talk to, uh, I guess this is, might be a millennial thing. I like, don't like to rip on millennials, but I will. <laughs> I absolutely will. Um, like this idea that it's not even really about my income. I shouldn't be able to generate enough income by doing something that I find emotionally satisfying. Um, even if it's worthless. So, um, whatever the thing might be. So, so there's this idea that work has meaning only in so far as it serves my financial goals, as it serves my emotional needs, which is a really, really weird way of thinking about this. Um, Carl Truman talks about in uh, the book I mentioned last week, we were talking about sexuality. I mean, he talks about just the strangeness of he. he uh, the book, again, was started as he began to consider the fact that his, uh, he found this, the, the statement, I feel like a man trapped in a woman's body, um, was a phrase that is completely understandable in our day, culturally, and 20 years ago would have been completely not understandable, to tell you. Um, and so he begins to do that with a handful of other questions, and, uh, and he said, um, like, one of the questions that, that's pervasive today that his grandfather would have never understood um, would have been, do you like your job? Isn't that weird? That seems like a really common question, though. Just, do you like your job? Here's what he means. He said, my grandfather would not have understood that question um, because he saw his job as, essentially, that question had to mean something sort of like, can he pay his mortgage, pay for groceries, and is he somewhat good at getting whatever the job is done? Had nothing to do with his own kind of therapeutic happiness or fulfillment um, or sense of meaning. And in the end, he had responsibilities before his family, before God. Um, he needed to fulfill those responsibilities. And would this job allow him to do that? In other words, his job didn't belong to him and his own emotional satisfaction. It belonged to someone else. It belonged to his family. It belonged to God. Um, 
And so, uh, and then what Truman goes on to argue is that when we ask that question in our day, no one means that, right? What Truman's grandfather would say. Everyone means is, how emotionally resonant are you with this job? Like, are you emotionally satisfied by making widgets all day? Like, are you emotionally satisfied by working on the assembly line? Like, they, they, it all has to do with your own personal happiness. And that's been the shift, uh, fundamentally, in our day and age, is uh, we have to navigate things like uh, fellow employees who don't value and love what we love in the, in the break room. We have to deal with employees sometimes who need to hear, some, need to hear a hard word or a good word, um, and yet uh, but if we say those words to that employee, um, we might find ourselves at odds with the people who employ us. Um, and then there's HR, which HR is just chairman. So, um, and in the midst of all of those kind of navigating those hurdles, uh, we also live in a world which tells you, hey, that the meaning of your job is your own emotional satisfaction. And your job belongs to you. Um, but the end and the goal of your job should ultimately be you. Not, um, not the profits of your company, um, not the well-being of your family, um, not the, uh, the honor and the glory that belongs to God. Um, and I'm going to throw one more wrinkle in there of problems that we have to deal with. Um, we live in a day and age in which companies don't act like companies anymore. In the name of ethics and morality, they, they often try to act like uh, social renewal movements, like churches. Um, you guys heard of the company Basecamp? Uh, they make a piece of software um, that I've used off and on for the joke thing, right? right. Um, great company, uh, seemingly great company, and um, in, I think it was the fall of 2020, in the midst of all of the craziness, um, they started catching flack because they hadn't issued any public statements about COVID, about race stuff, or about any of those kind of things. Um, and their uh, CEO wrote, and board wrote an open letter to all of the employees at Basecamp, essentially saying, like, hey, we're not a social renewal company. We're not a company that is, we're not like a politi political lobbying company. We're not a healthcare pr provider. Like, we write software. That's what we do. Um, we write software that people use, and that's what we're going to do. So um, we're not going to be issuing statements about the summer of 2020. We're not going to be issuing statements about the evils of Trump or the evils of Biden. We're not, we're not going to be, um, like, trying to, you know, put rainbow flags on our banner in our product. We're going to try to keep producing a piece of software that is useful for people. Um, and can be trusted and relied upon, and you can use it. That was brilliant and insanely controversial. Uh, they, they estimate about 30% of their employees left, um, left their company when that letter was, I mean, can you imagine like, leaving your company because your boss says, hey, um, all of this other stuff, we don't really care about it. At the end of the day, we just want you to do your job. And 30% of the company like, resigned from their company because the company wouldn't take on um, the identity that so many other companies and corporations are taking on in our day, which is to make social statements, or religious statements, or political statements. And so, they and so increasingly, like in industry and companies, they require a kind of 
social or political or even spiritual uh, loyalty to, to institutions with which we're only really supposed to have like pragmatic contracts with. Does that make sense? Like, I give you this number of hours of my life every week, and in exchange, you give me these goods. You give me money, you give me insurance, that's what you give me. But instead, what, what companies have begun to demand of us is a kind of, and using HR departments to do it, and I think your example of the DEI stuff was one of the examples, is to say, no, no actually, like, we are a company pursuing a particular social program, a particular vision of the good life, and we actually require you to sign on to all of that. That's terrible. It actually puts all of us in way, 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 way more difficult situations. Although our, uh, the company I work for hasn't done that yet. Um, I'll keep it in line to show up one Monday to staff meeting saying, we have some new initiatives this week. Um, like we, we, we live in an age in which companies now no longer um, simply try to produce a good. Uh, they try to, and, and all you're having to navigate is, is this a good that's actually good? Is this a good that honors God? Is this a good that produces um, and blesses and helps people? Or is this a good that's wicked and corrupting to our culture? Now you have to do that kind of calculus with your work. And you have to figure out, like, hey, if I go work for this company that makes... Um, like nuts and bolts, are they going to make me like give my pronouns? Are they going to make me adhere to somebody else's pronouns? Are they making are they making me sign off on things that the Bible would condemn? Like that's a whole nother now layer of things that we have to navigate as Christians living in Rome um, and trying to faithfully serve and honor Jesus in our day and age. So how do we do that? Um, one big principle, and then a couple of, um, I kind of want us to wade in together with maybe some details um, that, that can help guide us there. So if you'll turn in your Bible to Ephesians 6, back to Ephesians 6, but we're going to read a little bit earlier in the chapter. Will somebody read verses 5 through 9 with vigor, joy? Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of, of your heart, as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Through what? Not through what? Through not yet. Okay. With good will, doing service as to the Lord, and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same shall he, shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And you, masters, do the same things to them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Um, and so uh, here it's talking to obviously the servants, bond servants, and slaves. It's often translated in how they deal with their masters. Um, the way that slavery was arranged and set up within Rome, within Roman culture, um, you shouldn't think of it as say, chattel slavery in the South. Uh, they had each of them had massive and uh, massive issues and problems within both of those systems, and they had very different kinds of problems because they were different kinds of systems. 
Um, so bond service within the Roman Empire, largely in slavery within the Roman Empire, um, largely involved debt, unless you were a city conquered and you were taken as a slave. Um, but for, for the most part, slavery was, particularly uh, bond service, um, was tied to debt. Um, and so you uh, would work for an agreed upon number of years. Um, this is how ideally it was supposed to work. There's always tricks to be played to make it not work this way. Uh, you worked for this number of years in order to offset a certain amount of debt, a certain amount of money um, that you owe. In other words, you're exchanging, like you do in our system, you're exchanging time for money. Does that make sense? Now this, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to go beyond that, but, but essentially, essentially what this is talking to is, is, a, is a fundamental form of what, how most of us in this room make money, which is we work for somebody else. Right? So there's entrepreneurs who have a different situa situation, there's business owners um, who have a different situation um, because there's not necessarily a person over them, but in some ways uh, it's really applicable to all of us as we exchange time for money. Some of you have very valuable time and some of us have very not valuable time. <laughs> um, and so how that exchange goes. Um, but what, what I want us you to mostly notice it is we live in a day and age which work has value insofar as it belongs to you. It meets your needs, it meets your goals, it satisfies your emotional desires. In the Bible, the only place that work has meaning is that it's done for someone else. Particularly it's done unto the Lord. That's the fundamental difference between a secular approach to work and a biblical approach to work. A biblical approach to work would say, hey, when you show up to your job or your school on Monday and you clock in or you get to work, and whatever, I don't know if people clock in anymore, but um, you get to work doing the work that God has set before you, the meaning that, that work to actually have value, um, it must be work that is done unto Jesus, your Lord. Whatever your work is. Now that may seem like a pretty obvious thing, a small thing. Maybe it's a thing you've heard your entire life. I actually think the ramifications of this are massive and huge. I wanna, and, and I want to help us to think or start to dive into the meaning of that uh, by using another concept that's found somewhere else in Scripture. Um, Paul says in another passage that all things are made holy through thanksgiving and prayer. All things are made holy through thanksgiving and prayer. So let's take, I, every Sunday afternoon I have a stout. My one day where I drink a stout beer. Usually I drink lighter beers or no beer. So on Sundays I have a stout beer, very weighty beer. Um, the text would say all things, including this stout beer, are made holy. How are they made holy? Through thanksgiving, thanksgiving to God, and prayer. So the meaning of the goodness of this stout beer, figure out which one it will be today. Um, I think there's a stout beer in my fridge called Even More Jesus, which is awesome. <laughs> um, so drinking Even More Jesus, uh, how is that, where, where is the meaning of that beer, the goodness of that beer? What's found as I give thanks to God and I pray. 
Think about how that affects how you drink a beer. Like you can't drink too many beers if you're giving thanks to God for them. Because the God who has given them to you has instructed you not to get drunk. It also brings a, a, a note of humility and joy as you partake of that beer because you recognize the fact that God himself has given it to you. It's not your own. It doesn't belong to you. It's given to you by God um, and to be enjoyed as a gift from God. Now, let's transition that over to here as we think about your work has meaning insofar as it's done unto the Lord. Think about the ways that transforms and changes your work. Like, you have to then, if this is work that's done unto God, is it the kind of work that would honor God? Are you cheating people? Are you manipulating the world? Are you uh, cultivating addictions? Is your job, like, does that make sense? Like, if you're doing it as unto the Lord, that, that's not just saying, hey, work hard at whatever you've been given to do, although that would be one of the it's also like, it gives you a lens to which to evaluate the kind of work you're doing. Is this work that honors Jesus? Is this work that blesses my neighbor? Is this work that, that, that honors God? Is this work that um, lines up with the word of God and, the, and the, the purposes of God on the earth? So one, you can begin to evaluate the work you've been called to do in terms of like, I can't do things which are intrinsically evil with the work I've been given to do. Because I can't. I, my, 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 my service belongs to God. My sweat belongs to God. My exhaustion belongs to God. All of that belongs to God. Secondly, it, it actually puts us in a position where we have to work hard. Like, really, really hard. Like, you shouldn't be lazy. You should work diligently. Whatever tasks you've been given, you should go to bed tired at night. You really should. Like, and it's not an exhaustion of like you're being burned out. It's an exhaustion of like I'm actually spending my life for something that has meaning and value. Um, and again, not simply because it's producing the right amount of wealth or you find a particular, particularly wonderful meaning in life by making lattes or whatever it is that you do. Because all day long, in this work that God has given to me, I work for God. I served Him. I used my hands, my mind, whatever the, whatever the gifts that God's given me. I've used those, my relationships, I've used those things to honor Him, to glorify Him. And so when you go to bed at night, you should go to bed tired. You should look, I look forward, I really, really look forward to my Sunday afternoon stout, laying on the couch and falling asleep on Sunday afternoons. I do. I really do. Sometimes I wake up on Sunday morning and I'm so excited. Always excited to go to church, worship Jesus. But I honestly will have the thought of like, I can't wait to lay on that couch this afternoon. Why? Because I work my tail off on Sundays. Unto the Lord. Please Him to honor Him, to glorify Him. Um, and, and so if we, if we understand this text rightly, it means that when you go to work on Monday, um, you're not working ultimately for a paycheck, although you should get money, uh, a, a fair exchange of money for your time. I mean, you're not ultimately working for your own emotion, emotional satisfaction. Do I, do I find some sort of emotional resonance with the task that's been set in front of me? But rather you should say, God is, this is the work that God has given me to do. May I do it with joy? May I do it with faithfulness? May I do it with diligence? 
You may go to bed tired at the end of the day. If you happen to do work that's emotionally resonant for you and makes you happy and feels like your life has value and meaning, great. If you literally sit on the assembly line and make widgets all day, like, praise be to God, like, this is the work he's given you to do. Do it faithfully. Do it diligently. Do it exhaustingly. And do it well. And never get confused about where your loyalties lie. Your loyalty is not to your company. Did I just say that? Your loyalty is not to your company. Now, your pastor should have loyalty to your church. It's a different deal. But, but like, if you work for Acme Widget Company, like, like part of like part of what I think is driving a lot of the DEI stuff is not like like a real social conscience. But it's like, if we can make it feel like when you work at Acme, you're a part of this big movement for justice, it creates a kind of loyalty which produces lower turnover, which then produces higher, higher, uh, retention, retention, less turnover, higher retention, and then higher profits. You know what I'm saying? Like that, 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 I think a lot of that is feeding it. I don't think a lot of these companies that are pushing some of these DEI envelopes so hard are really like deeply social conscience companies. I think they recognize like, hey, we can actually recruit better talent. We can, like, it's all, it's all a lever to pull up to generate more income. And so never get confused as you work at like Acme Widget Company, as you work at um, whatever the tasks and the jobs that God's given you to do, never get confused about where your loyalties are. This text like tells you where your loyalties are. They don't belong to your company. They belong to God. Which means, this is gloriously free. Another job comes along. With better pay, maybe slightly better hours, but whatever the, whatever the arrangement is, like you, you're not like dishonoring God by, by leaving your first company to go to your second. Unless it takes you away from Denver. In which case you might <laughs> like you're free. Because you have no covenantal loyalties to a company. You have covenantal loyalties to a family. You have covenantal loyalties to a church. You also have covenantal loyalties to God himself. But not to, like, ditch. Ditch might be great. Ditch might not be great. But you're free. Because you belong to the Lord. Not to Charlie. Um, so, um, that, that's the first principle. And really the, the most foundational principle I can... Um, I, I can get in front of us is that your work belongs to the Lord. The second principle I want to get in front of us um, as we're starting to run out of time is flip over to 2 Corinthians 15. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 15. So let me read verse 58. Vigor, joy, enthusiasm. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Um, this verse comes at the tail end of um, first kind of an apologetic or defense of the resurrection of Jesus, then moving and expanding from that to a kind of a shared or general understanding of how the resurrection will work. 
um, for the church, for the people of God. And then it expands from there to think to help think through what are the implications of the resurrection of Jesus for understanding what God's doing in the world. Um, and the idea of what God's doing in the world is he is essentially taking this world and remaking it, renewing it, restoring it. He's filling it with his glory. He's filling it with his renown. He's filling it with his kind of fruitfulness and joy. Um, which is to say that, that like, oftentimes when we think of the work of the Lord, we think about what kind of work is God doing in the world, we've tended to reduce that into kind of religious or spiritual categories. So we think the work of the Lord is um, helping Derek have a better theological understanding of the atonement. Or the work of the Lord is um, teaching Isaac how to pray. Um, those things are the work of the Lord. And so is making coffee. And, like, in, in other words, God is, is not, not, not only concerned with our devotional life or our theological understanding um, uh, of how the world is or, or our theological understanding of atonement. God's actually concerned with, if you go all the way back to Genesis, you can see this, like, he has been concerned from the beginning with not, us, not only us knowing the truth, and the truth biblically and theologically, but also that we would bear fruit in the world. That means God's deeply concerned with the, the kind of work he's doing in the world is he's filling the world with, like, healthy marriages and families. So, so what is the work of the Lord? Is marriage a work of the Lord? Is raising children to know and fear and trust God a work of the Lord? Absolutely. God's concerned about it. If you see the progression from Genesis chapter 1 up to the very end of the Bible, Revelation 22, what do you see? You see um, us going from a world that is uh, largely without form and void to a world that's, uh, uh, that's chaotic, but at the center of it is a garden where man and God commune together and man is commissioned to do work, to garden. Where does that lead? Well, where is the ultimate kind of trajectory of where that's headed in Revelation 22? A city. And not just any city, but a garden city. But not like New Jersey. Oh, better than New Jersey. I, I hear that New Jersey parts of it are beautiful, but all I've ever seen is concrete. Um, in other words, the, the trajectory, what do you need to do to produce a garden city? Well, you need lawyers, um, you need real estate developers, you need concrete, you need conduit, you need electricity, you need coffee, you need a lot of coffee. Um, you, you need restaurants, you need apartment buildings, you need um, internet, you need, in, in other words, in, in the full range of what God says he's up to as we read the Bible is humanity um, in communion with God, worshiping God, honoring God, loving God, obeying God, living according to God's law, and doing so in ways that bear fruit in the world, such that the world is filled the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, and the world looks like a garden city. Like the picture in Revelation 22 isn't like some magical universe out that exists out there that we're going to be. Um, kind of escape off to. Um, somebody was making a joke about the Left Behind series. Like planes flying on the sky and all that. Um, that. That's not the picture in the Bible. The picture in the Bible is God is at work by His Spirit in the church, building His kingdom, um, restoring men and women to Himself, bringing judgment against wickedness, um, transforming and renewing all things. And it's going to take a really long time. 
as he's doing it, he's filling the world with his goodness, his beauty, his glory, his fruitfulness. He's pushing back the darkness, crushing the evil, judging and condemning it, and establishing his righteousness by his mercy and grace and the work of the Spirit. Which means like the work that you're called to do Monday through Friday, Saturday, Sunday, not Sunday, you should Saturday on Sunday, is meant to contribute to that vision, that end, that goal, that trajectory that the God is working towards. Because your job matters. It's given meaning, again, because it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. You are God's employee. You are God's bond servant. You are God's slave. Not just in terms of your prayer life, but also in terms of the, the contracts that you write. Also in terms of the um, sales calls that you make. Also in terms of the software that you design. Also in terms of the accounting spreadsheets that you fill in. I know it's hard for you to imagine. Like, especially all of these things are done in service to God. And I think the meaning of this verse in verse 58 is that God is taking all of it and he's saying, like, you may not see how all of this contributes to or is going to be used by me towards my ends, but his promise is your work done in the Lord, none of it will be in vain. He's using all of it to build something, which again comes back to that very first point. The only basis for which our work has any meaning at all is it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to God. And he's promised to take it and to wield it and to use it um, in such a way that not a one single bit of it will be lost, will be in vain in the last day. So, in the uh, seven minutes that remain, um, so some basic, basic ideas that I, I want us to get to is living out of those principles. Um, the, the first one is Rod Dreher wrote a book. Uh, it's based, the title is taken from an Alexander, I always mess up his last name, Solzhen Stig. Solzhen Stig. You know what I'm saying? Famous Russian dude. Um, in which he espoused this idea and he says, look, live not by lies. Um, and and the, the idea there was like he was writing to people living in the Soviet Union and he was essentially saying to them, look, um, you may not be in a position where you can call out every lie. You may not be in a position where you can, um, uh, you, you can confront every lie that's being told to you by the media or by, the, uh, by your government. But you can at least decide in your heart, I'm not going to live according to those lies. Um, and, and I would say that's one basic principle for Christians living in this day and age. To just commit themselves to. If your work belongs to God, then you should not live according to lies. You shouldn't work according to lies. Whether we're talking about pronoun rules, or we're talking about um, things that you're being asked to affirm in the workplace, or things you're asked, being asked to deny in the workplace, you can just simply say, I refuse to live according to lies. Now, increasingly, that may be massively costly for you. And you belong to the Lord. Your work belongs to the Lord. Let me say that again. 
increasingly, it seems, choosing and saying, I'm not going to live according to lies, I'm not going to work according to lies, may be costly to you. It may keep you from being promoted. It may cause you to lose your job. It may cause you to lose friendships and relationships at work. And you belong to the Lord. Your work belongs to Him. And if that's true, you can't dishonor Him by, by living and working according to lies. Speaking according to lies. So, so I, I put that there at first. We, we cannot live by lies. I, I would commend to you Rod, Rod Greer's book. Um, it's, it's excellent. Um, second, I, I would say all of you in, in, in the various places in which you work, unless you're in school, but even in school, we, we have, we've been, sometimes you have social power or social authority. Um, always think and learn from Christ in terms of how you exercise whatever authority God has given you or influence that God has given you in the workplace that you're in. Um, Tim Keller used a great illustration one time of um, somebody came to him and said, I don't have any, I mean, I get great gospel, I should work according to God, the gospel should shape how I do my work. Um, and, uh, but, but I don't have any idea what exactly that means. Um, and there was somebody else in the room. I was actually at this, at this conference. And um, the guy said, well, I had a boss who was a Christian. Um, and I really screwed something up. So bad that probably should have gotten fired in my workplace. Um, but uh, my manager took, took responsibility for it. Took responsibility for it. And took responsibility for it knowing he could take the hit with the up, higher ups. Like they would... They'd come down on him, they'd get upset with him, but they wouldn't fire him. Whereas if they came down on me, they would fire me. And so he kind of stood in my place, took, took responsibility for what, what people working under him did. He didn't let me take the hit and get fired for what took place. Um, it was ultimately my, my fault. Like, learn to become the kind of people that use whatever authority God's given you in the workplace to care for, bless, be gracious to other people. Choose work that actually blesses others, like serves your name. Um, so live, don't live by lies. Live according to what's true. And second, use whatever authority you've been given to care for, nurture, provide for, and be gracious to um, the people under your authority. Um, and third, may, may your work, may you choose work and orient yourself towards work um, that promotes the flourishing of other people in the work that you do. In the four minutes that remain, do you have questions, thoughts? Um, thoughts that you think like, hey, we'd be helped to hear, or two, a question um, that you want us to talk about for a few minutes. I have enough caffeine in me right now that I can tap it. <laughs> It's a good reminder for me that understanding that it is this work is God ordained, and my responsibility is to honor Him in it. Because yeah. in the the daily small tasks, I think we lose sight of it. We get caught in, uh, caught uh, caught up in the things that are right in front of us, and our eyes are pulled down 
and saying instead of saying fixed on Christ, who is the one that is our yeah. source of strength, our courage in in the workplace, and uh, the one that is ultimately providing for us through that work. Yeah. And so that's a that's a great one. Thank yeah. you. Um, a book I would commend to you if you want to read more about this uh, is a book by Tim Keller and Catherine Ashdorf. I'm bad at last name. Um, uh, but it's the title of the book is Every Good Endeavor. Um, it's it's a really good book uh, with regards to work. I don't always uh, I don't always see eye to eye with Keller on certain things, approaches to things. Um, but that book is excellent, really excellent. Talks about just the sacredness of the work, all the work that God's given us to do. she should have to have from not doing the work he needs to be doing. Um, if I don't actually, if I don't cut that pretty quick, sever that and go, like that's, the, that's, not, a, that's not being gracious, that's actually hating my son, right? Um, the same way, like if you have an employee, you have somebody who's, who's responsible for getting a job done, and they're just being lazy, they're just not doing the work that they're supposed to be doing, it's not loving to then just go like, oh, I'm just going to keep covering that over. Like, if somebody makes a mistake, that's one thing. If somebody's consistently using their I'm a Christian card as an excuse for like, oh, we relate. Like, we get along well. And who cares about talking about all this stuff that I didn't do what I'm supposed to do? Love actually requires you to go like, hey, man, you didn't do what you're supposed to do. Like, if this consistently happens, like, you don't have a job here anymore. Um, and again, that's not... There's a different, and I guess the way I would even frame it is, love doesn't eliminate all pain. It's just like, if somebody makes a mistake, grace is going to cover over someone's mistake. It's going to try to help them in the midst of their mistake. If somebody's persistent in, say, the sin of laziness, the sin of like lying, not doing this that they're going to do, we well, actually have to bear responsibility for like, like it, grace eventually is going to go, hey, actually, like, um, you're going to be disciplined for this sin. Like you're going to be disciplined for this action because it's it's hurting the company, it's hurting me, and it's hurting you. Um, and, and it's not going to serve you to just let you keep living this way. It's actually going to serve you better by confronting you. What about um, so I have a number of friends who are in companies who push this DEI stuff or um, general vote things and have grown kind of complacent about it, like, just kind of like, oh, well, I roll my eyes at those things, like, what would you say are, in terms of, like, principle, principles for, like, persevering in those environments, I mean, maybe you're still able to do your work, but where, where are, like, the, the battle lines where it's important to, like, be Christian in your work ethic with those things, and, I mean, if, say someone worked for Google, 
Um, I, I think I think Rod Dreher's principle is actually a really good one. Um, you may not have to overthrow. It may not be in a place where you can overthrow every lie. It may not be in a place where you have to or can even confront every lie. But you can you can say at a minimum, I'm not going to live according to lies. I'm not going to tell lies. Um, and so I'd say like they, they need to create for themselves a, like a a line that says, hey, I'm not crossing this line. Um, and then they need to, and, and, and here's biblical reasons why I'm not going to cross this line. Um, and then I'm going to live according to this principle, even if it costs me my job. Um, and so, like, I, maybe that means they just conveniently forget to put their pronouns on every email. It means they, like, they avoid using pronouns altogether uh, when they're talking to somebody. Um, like, I, I don't know exactly where to draw those lines. I'd have to have those conversations with them. But I think, I, I think Rod Dreher's book is a really faithful guide to help people think through it, which is to say, um, and it's, the reason why he puts it that way is, is to say, look, like, sometimes we are in deeply compromised situations in our jobs. Um, and so how do we stay in those places um, without destroying our own humanity? Without destroying our own image-bearing calling in the midst of those really, really compromised places. If, like, it's going to take a year for me to find a new job, I'll probably get to work on that year finding a new job. And then figure out, like, hey, here's, here's, how I, here's how I faithfully live, not by lies, in this compromised position as I try to find my, my, my way somewhere else. Um, depending on the level of compromise and what's being demanded of. Alright, let me pray for you. And then we will head up and start worshiping in about 15 minutes.